We have six stories today, and we're going to jump straight in. Our first is titled, Catch His Death. I'm a landlord, and I own two small houses next to mine. One of my tenants was a 50-something-year-old economist who had been renting for over 10 years. He lived with his son. Last Tuesday, I got home from work at around 5pm and found an ambulance in front of his house. I watched as they brought my neighbour out on a stretcher, then loaded him into the ambulance. His son rushed to his car, I assume to follow the ambulance to the hospital. The next day, while I was at work, I realised I'd left some paperwork at home. So I used my lunch time to go get them. As I approached my driveway, I saw my neighbour, the one who was taken by the ambulance the day before, standing shirtless in his front yard, talking to someone on his cell phone. I guessed it wasn't anything big, and the hospital discharged him. I waved to him, but I don't think he saw me. I got my papers, then went back to my car. The neighbour, I guessed, had gone back inside. Two days later, my wife asked me if I'd heard anything about our next-door neighbour as she had heard from another neighbour that he died in the hospital. I told her, No, I saw him the day after the ambulance came. He looked fine. The following day at work, I received a phone call from the neighbour's son. I'm just calling to let you know my father died. Oh, I'm so sorry. He had another heart attack in the hospital on Tuesday night. I know, I saw him on Wednesday, but I didn't say anything to the son. I just gave him my condolences. Later on, I was talking to a different neighbour who lives on the other side of the street, and we spoke about the neighbour's death. She told me she also saw him on the Wednesday. Are you sure it was Wednesday? Yes, I'm positive. I was getting ready for Bingo, and Bingo is on Wednesday. He was talking on his phone, and he wasn't wearing a shirt. I thought to myself, he'll catch his death. Story number two is The Town. 
Many years ago, I set off with two of my best friends for a day of mountain biking at Snowshoe in West Virginia. It was way before the days of GPS, so we were going by an old map and half-remembered directions. Somewhere along the way, we got lost and ended up in a small town. We stopped to ask for directions, but there wasn't a single person to be seen. We pulled over. Then set off looking for anyone who could help us. It was around 9 or 10 a.m., so there should have been people around. We went into the post office. Hello? But there was no one in there. Then we came to what appeared to be the only bar in town. It was open. Hello? Anyone here? But again, not a single person was in there. We went back outside. What the hell's going on? Let's just get out of here. As we headed back to the truck, we saw an old man walking towards us. As he drew level, we asked, Where are all the people? To which he replied, Well, I guess folks around here don't much get up before noon. Then we asked him for directions. He pointed to the road we came in on and told us to go back that way for about 10 miles. Then make a right and it would take us to the interstate. We thanked him, then hurried to the truck. We were pretty keen to get out of that town. We were about five minutes down the road when we saw a woman standing on the road ahead of us. She was wearing a fluoro jacket and holding a sign. As we approached, she turned the sign from slow to stop. Hey, what's the problem? There's construction up ahead. You'll have to wait for a minute. There wasn't construction on this road when we came down it the first time, but we figured they must have just started. We told the woman what had happened in the town, and she just laughed and said, The people in that town are kind of strange. We sat there, waiting for cars to come from the opposite direction, but none did. And every time we tried to ask her how long we'd have to wait for, she'd change the subject and try to engage us in conversation. Eventually, she could see how impatient we were getting 
and said, I guess it's clear now. You can go ahead. How she knew this, I don't know, as she didn't have a walkie-talkie. We drove on, and for the next ten miles or so, until we came to the interstate turn-off, we didn't pass any construction. In fact, we didn't pass anything at all, not even another car. There may be an innocent explanation for all of it, but we couldn't think of one. I'm a correctional officer, and I just entered my seventh year working in my facility. The floor I work on is generally reserved for mid-security violent inmates. A typical night for me is to lock down all inmates for the night, then do a head count. I have to put eyes on every inmate on the floor. All the floors on my pod are filled to capacity, except for C Block, which is undergoing renovations and is currently free of all prisoners. About a week ago, after finishing the head count, I went back to the control room. I had nothing to do for the next hour, so I started browsing the internet. Every now and then, I'd check the screens. What the actual hell? I was sure I saw someone standing in the centre of cell 4 on block C. The block that was empty. I looked at the other screens for a second. Then, when I looked back to the C-block camera, the cells were all empty. I didn't know what to make of this. I kept looking at that screen, and about 30 minutes later, I saw the person again. I left the control room and sprinted to cell block C. But cell 4 was as empty as all the others. I went back to the control room, then put in a request to the electronic maintenance department to look into it. The next night, I came into work and the report was ready for me. It stated that all the wiring was intact and the camera feed was indeed linked to cell block C. I went about my work, lockdown, head count, 
then back to the control room to wait until the next cell check. I tried to ignore it, but I couldn't help it. I kept glancing at the screen for cell block C, but I saw nothing out of the ordinary. It was around 2am when it happened. It came from cell block C, cell 4. Then, it sounded like the door was being kicked by a horse. I looked at the screens and all the cameras in that pod were blinking off and on. I headed to cell block C. But this time, I wasn't in such a hurry. Torn between doing my job and worried about what might be there waiting for me. I got about halfway there when... Then, one by one, the rest of the open cell doors on that pod slammed shut. I was done. I ran out of that block, shutting the door behind me. There is no natural force in that cell block that could cause those six cell doors to slam shut like they did. I've put in for a vacation, and by the time I get back, the renovations will be finished, and cell block C will no longer have unoccupied cells. Our fourth story today is set at a summer camp. In my early teens, I went to a summer camp in upstate New York. It was a gorgeous place on a lake and very isolated. The nearest town was a 15-minute drive. And this was well before cell phones and the internet. So the camp was truly its own little world. On the last night of camp, we had a bonfire on the beach. I'll be right there. Okay, just move that piece. 
Besides the light from the fire and the cabins up the hill behind us, it was pitch black. There were no towns or homes in the woods on the other side of the lake. So looking out over the water, you only saw black nothingness. It was around 9pm when it happened. Please! Somebody help me! It sounded like it came from the lake. We all froze and it became eerily quiet. Then, one of the councillors shone his flashlight over the surface of the water. There was nothing. No person, no boat. No splashing sounds. But then it came again. And this time it sounded much closer, like it was just short of the beach. Please, I'm begging you, help me. This time, three or four flashlights scanned the water. And again, we saw nothing. One of the councillors shouted, Where are you? We can't see you. Tell us what you need. There was no response. Finally, the head councillor said, All of you, get to your cabins, now. We didn't need to be told a second time and ran up the hill to the cabins. Staff members were assigned to stand watch over each cabin during the night. And we stayed up late talking about what happened before finally falling asleep. The next day, we were wakened by the bell that woke us each morning. The plan was to clean up the camp before the buses arrived at lunchtime. But instead, the head councillor entered our cabin and said, The buses will be here in 20 minutes. Pack your stuff as fast as you can. We're out of here. I have no idea what really happened that night. But the councillors seemed to think it was more than just someone trying to scare us. And all of us were certain of one thing. That voice came from the lake. I quite enjoy those stories where someone is driving in the middle of nowhere and they're forced to stop for gas or directions. Stories like this one. I was driving from Dallas to Tuscaloosa. 
It was late at night, and I had about a quarter tank of gas, which translated to about a hundred miles. The nearest town was 90-something miles away, so I was a little worried about making it. Then, I came to a tiny little town that wasn't on the map. There were a few houses, a convenience store, and, more importantly, a gas station. There was a sign that read, Pay First. So, I went inside. Standing behind the counter was a very tall and very thin guy, at least six foot four, and with a very eerie look about him, kind of like the guy in the painting, American Gothic, minus the pitchfork. I told the guy I wanted to fill my car, and he just looked at me. So I took out my wallet and put a 50 on the counter. Again, he didn't say anything. Instead, he leaned over the counter, scanned the outside, then looked back at me. Then he handed me a hat and said, You look like a nice young fella. You don't want to be out here at this time of night looking like you do. Put the hat on, get to your car quickly, then get gas at the next town. I was confused and said, I don't have enough gas to get there. That's why I'm here. I didn't even know this place existed. It doesn't. Here, there's two gallons left in this can. Just drive a few miles out of town, then use these two gallons to get to the next town. But please, you need to go now. I stopped asking questions. And left. I drove back to Dallas just four days later, this time during daylight. And I know it sounds absurd, but I couldn't find that town. I took the exact same route, but the town just wasn't there. And believe me, I was looking out for it. I don't know what that guy was trying to save me from, but it was the last time I ever stopped at a town that wasn't on a map.
We have one more today, a fictional story, titled Rebecca in the Corn. And I'll see you next week. I have only had one paranormal experience, but it was something that affected me in a very profound manner. I was 14, and it was summer break. I was driving into town with my mum. There wasn't much to look at on this ride, except for the cornfields that stretched far and wide on both sides of the road. Oh, don't forget, your father wants that thing from the hardware store. I had recently seen the movie Signs, and being an imaginative child, I was scanning the corn for aliens. I didn't see any, of course, but I did see something. Standing in the corn, about 20 feet or so back from the road, was a girl from my school, Rebecca Morgan. She was a couple of years younger than me, so I didn't really know her, but it was a small town. As we passed, she looked straight at me, and for a few seconds, I felt what can only be described as sadness. We pulled up outside the supermarket, then headed inside. We'd only been there for a minute or two when my mum ran into someone she knew and of course they stopped to chat. I wasn't even slightly interested in their conversation, but something Mrs Langtree said made my ears prick up. Such a shame about the little Morgan girl. What do you mean? Oh, you haven't heard? She's missing. Oh my lord. No one's seen her for two days. Mom? I'm talking here. Mom, listen. I just saw her in the corn. It didn't take long for the wheels to start turning. And before I knew it, my mum and I were sitting in the back of the sheriff's car, driving back to the cornfields. Son, are you sure it was her? Yeah, I'm sure. As we approached, I could see Rebecca still standing in the same place. Stop. Over there. Show me exactly where you saw her. What was he talking about, I thought. She was standing, not 15 feet, in front of us. There, I said, and pointed straight at her. Come with me. The sheriff gave me a you-better-not-be-wasting-my-time look, then walked over to where I pointed. 
I swatted at a bug that flew into my face. Then I looked back at where Rebecca was standing, but she was gone. Then the sheriff pushed aside the corn. Oh, Jesus. There was a deep gash on her forehead and dark, dried blood covering her hair and one side of her face. Rebecca, it turned out, had been dead for around 48 hours. The sheriff had the deputy drive us back to our car, but later that night, he came to our house. Young man, Rebecca's body wasn't visible from the road. So I'll ask you again. How did you know she was in the corn? It didn't take very long for the gossip to start. People actually thought I had something to do with Rebecca's death. Even when the autopsy proved, without a doubt, that I was 30 miles away at my grandmother's house when the murder happened. I don't know if Rebecca chose to show herself to me or if it was random, and I just happened to be the unlucky person who was looking out at the corn that day. They never did find her killer, and all these years later, when I go back to that town to visit my parents, I still get dirty looks from some of the older residents. As I said, I've only had one paranormal experience. It was enough 